Welcome to program three. It's time to talk about presuppositions, the presuppositions of NLP. And we're going to talk about them as if they're convenient beliefs. They're beliefs that structure our reality as we do the techniques and processes of NLP. And I guess the nearest English language equivalent would be assumption. So the presuppositions of NLP, our assumptions, they're the beliefs that we adopt. Now, they're not necessarily true, however, they filter our perceptions. And as you'll remember from the man on page seven, values, beliefs and attitudes are part of what filter our external reality as it comes in and becomes an internal representation. So by adopting certain beliefs, we can increase our results in NLP over and above having beliefs which may be less than ideal or don't provide us with the proper belief system in order to produce great results. Uh, what a lot of my students say to me is that they really love working with me because I believe in everybody, because I see the best in everyone, I see everyone's potential. And the way I look at it is if, you know, we really all have fantastic potential. And most of us are just unaware of it or we're incapable of accessing it. And all we need to do is get rid of a little bit of something that's covering it up. And then each person can access their own magnificence and they can produce anything they want to, whatever results they want to produce, it's possible. Now, if I didn't believe that, what would happen is... I might be sitting across from a client and say to myself, well, this person's never going to get there. And what would that create in my projection? It would create a client that wouldn't get there. When we adopt these presuppositions, the results that we produce with our clients will be better. And so they're essentially convenient assumptions, things that we assume or believe or that we put on and they structure everything that we do while we're doing NLP. The outcome is that it's going to change my behavior. And the kind of change it's going to produce in my behavior is going to improve my results. So by adopting these beliefs, I can improve my results. Now, in hypnosis, this kind of assumption has been known for years. George Estabrooks in 1943 in Hypnotism and Andre Weitenhofer in 1957 in the book General Techniques of Hypnotism both said essentially the same thing that the client under hypnosis will not produce results that the hypnotist does not believe are possible and that's really important from the perspective of NLP because what that means is that we can change our beliefs and improve our results so like I said the presuppositions of NLP are convenient beliefs which are necessary which are for the purpose of structuring our perceptions when we work with clients. And as you continue through this training, we're going to ask you to actualize those beliefs. In fact, we're going to ask you to accept them when you do NLP and make those beliefs part of your structure and therefore part of your perception. And through that, it'll create change in your behavior. So part of what we'll be doing when you come to take the training is we'll be watching you to make sure you've actualized those beliefs in your external behavior. So when you get into the training room, you may want to ask some questions about them, but let's go through them all right now. 
So we're going to go through the presuppositions one by one now. So the first presupposition is respect for the other person's model of the world. By respect, that doesn't mean acceptance. It doesn't mean we don't change it. It simply means that we respect their model of the world and enter into it. So if a client comes to you and says something that's completely unrealistic and you're sitting there wondering, wow, that's so crazy. If you were to point out, say, that the person was crazy, that probably wouldn't be the best way to approach them. The best way to approach them would be to accept their model of the world and enter into it. I once had a practitioner who had someone walk in one time and they said, I see people on TV and they come down out of the TV and they follow me around. And the practitioner said, who is it that's following you around? And the client said, well, of course, it's Alf from Home and Away. Of all the people that this client could have chosen, he chose Alf to have following him around. So the question, well, the practitioner thought it was a bit crazy. And what the practitioner said was, of all the people that you've chosen, does the term home and away have any meaning for you? I mean, if you're going to have someone come off the TV set and follow you around, you'd at least want to pick someone from something that had meaning for you, right? And that's respecting the client's model of the world. So if a client walks in and says, I'm talking to UFOs, can you help me? Whether it's a good thing or not, and obviously it depends what they're doing with it, but you're going to say yes. And you might even say, well, I've got a message from the UFO and here it is for you. So the fact that you use the client's model of the world, you respect it and you assist them through that to create the kinds of change they want to. And that's essentially what respecting the client's model of the world means. Okay, number two, behavior and change are to be evaluated in terms of the context in which they occur and the ecology of the change. Now that's really important. In general, we want to evaluate something that happens. Whatever the client gives us, we want to evaluate that in terms of the context in which it occurs. And that means what's going on around the client. What's the ecology of what the client is asking us to do? For example, if someone comes to you and says, I'd like to have more energy all the time, you need to ask yourself, is this appropriate? For example, if you gave a client energy all the time, they may not sleep very well. So we need to evaluate that particular change in terms of the context in which it occurs and in terms of the ecology of making that change. Number three, resistance in the client is a sign of lack of rapport. We don't believe that there are any resistant clients. We believe that they're only inflexible communicators. Effective communicators accept and utilize all the communication presented to them. Number four, people are not their behaviors. This is really important because what it does is it allows you to accept the person and change the behavior. A person's behavior is not who they are. If we jumped down to number six, we're going to notice that the most important information about a person is that person's behavior. 
And we're also going to remember that the person is not their behavior. So what does that all mean? Well, what it means is that you see and I see everyone is magnificent. And we assist them in actually actualizing that magnificence. So clearly you're more than your behavior. In fact, whatever behavior you think of, you know you're more than that, don't you? I think you know that already. You know that you're more, in fact, than who you can conceive yourself to be. See, if we walked up to 50 people on the street and said, who are you? They might say, well, they might say something about their behavior, like I'm a lawyer or a banker or I'm a wife or I'm a mother or I'm a hypnotherapist. However, what they're describing is simply their behavior. It's not actually who they are. So in NLP, we believe that people are more than their behaviors. They're not just their behaviors. They're not only their behaviors. And we're going to accept the person and change the behavior, the behavior that they're producing. And this is really important, especially when you're working with kids, especially working with kids that have learning disabilities. And just so you know, I don't actually believe in learning disabilities. Uh, when people bring a child to me and say, this child's got a learning disability, I say, well, what is he learning? That he shouldn't be. Because it's not a disability of learning, correct? Or what about when a child comes in and they say they're dyslexic? Have you ever heard of dyslexic people being put on Ritalin? They actually wanted to put this kid on Ritalin. And so I said, what are you good at? And this kid said, well, I can take apart a airplane engine and I can put it back together without a diagram. And I was like, wow, that's a really good skill. And this kid was good. He could actually take the whole engine apart and put it back together with no diagram. And how do you think he was doing it? Well, he possibly was doing it kinesthetically. So using his feelings and using the feeling on his hands and then sensations. So he wasn't really dyslexic. He was just attempting to learn using the wrong representational system. And we'll discover that a little bit more when we get into that section. But what a wonderful skill that this child had. And I've worked with other children. They've also called them dyslexic. And I've asked them, well, what are you good at? And this one particular girl said, well, I'm really good at ice skating. In fact, I'm going to be the state champion. And I found that interesting too, because a lot of the people who are labeled dyslexic have a very highly developed kinesthetic external representational system. When you think about learning disabilities, it's impossible for a human not to learn, right? We learn no matter what. A learning disability simply means the child is learning something that he or she is not supposed to. Now, if we take someone and brand them dyslexic or ADHD or any of the other million letter disorders that we're currently giving people, the question is, under what circumstances do you do this? And when does the child forget to learn what they're meant to learn? Think about attention deficit. Think about the meaning of the words. Attention deficit. If you really had attention deficit, you'd be turning down your attention all the time. Now, try and turn down your attention. Like imagine a little thermostat in your brain that you could turn down your attention for just a minute. 
Well, what does that mean? What it really means is that child, they've turned down their attention. It means they're paying attention to something else. So something that they should or shouldn't be. So what I'd like to know is what is the child doing that he or she shouldn't be doing? It's context dependent. So I don't accept labels as being meaningful because all meaning is dependent on a certain context. And I'd like to know under what circumstance is the child not bouncing off the ceiling? And yes, there are some cases where the child is not bouncing off the ceiling. Words have a certain context and if we label someone and say that the person is their behaviour, then how can that be true? Does the attention deficit disorder person have attention deficit disorder when they're asleep? I mean, everyone sleeps, right? So I think it's really important when you look at a person to certainly not label them as their behaviour. And that will allow us to accept the person and change the behaviour. Imagine if you never diagnosed anybody. Imagine if you never diagnosed anybody. If we label people as their behaviours, then what's going to happen is we put them in a box. And if we as an NLP practitioner put our clients in a box, then what's going to happen is that we'll have less belief that they can change. And if we have less belief that they can change, then we'll have less results. Understand? Number five. Everybody is doing the best they can with the resources they have available. Now what that means, essentially, is that all behaviour is geared toward adaptation and that the present behaviour is the best choice available. That means whatever choice a person is choosing in terms of their behaviour is the best choice they've got available at that very moment. And every behaviour, we believe, is motivated by a positive intention, even it's if it's an extremely negative behaviour. That means if somebody exhibits a behaviour to you which is bizarre, or maybe they're being a real jerk, they're only adapting or doing the best they can with that behaviour in terms of the resources they have in that present situation. What's interesting about that is it kind of lets people off the hook, right? And that includes you. Of course it does. So this is the NLP presupposition of forgiveness. Often people ask me, where's forgiveness in NLP? Well, this is it. Forgiveness is that everyone is doing the best they can with the resources they have available. And that includes you. And that means in the past, for all the things that you've done in the past, you can let yourself off the hook. Have you ever acted in the past as something less than the magnificent person that you are now? Of course you have, and so have I. So that means, essentially, at the time, you were only doing the best you could with the resources that you had available, and that implies forgiveness. Okay, number six. The most important thing we want to pay attention to, the thing that we want to calibrate on, is behaviour. We pay attention to the client's behaviour. That is the most important thing, not what they tell us verbally. So regardless of what a person says, we're going to judge based on behaviour. For example, if I say to you, let's have lunch, and you say, well, I'll try, you haven't said you're going to do it yet. And if you haven't done it, you probably won't do it. If you're going to try, 
you haven't done it. Now, this is one of my favorite parts of every seminar I do. So take a pen and place it in your left hand. Take your left hand, turn your left hand palm up and put your pen on your left hand. And in a moment, what we're going to do is try and pick up the pen. Are you ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Did you pick up your pen? Because if you picked up your pen, you didn't try. You did. In English, the word try essentially means I'm not going to do it. In fact, if we want someone to do something, we often tell them in hypnosis, I want you to try and really try. And by the way, the word try implies a lot of effort, but not doing it. So the most important information about a person is that person's behavior. We always calibrate on the person's behavior. So remember, a lot of these presuppositions about are about behavior. Three, four, five, and six. Actually, go back to number two as well and look at those now. Behavior and change are to be evaluated in terms of context. Resistance in the client, which is a behavior, is simply a sign of lack of rapport. People are not their behaviors. Everyone is doing the best they can with the resources they have available and we calibrate on their behavior. These are some really nice presuppositions which allow us to treat the client a little bit differently. Okay, let's look at number seven. Presupposition number seven is the map is not the territory. Now what that says is that the words that we use are not the event or the item that they represent. Each person has a different map of what a word means inside of them. Everyone has a different meaning for a certain word. If I were to talk to you about what I believe the word love means, for example, I would have a very different meaning than you would have. And if we took the word picnic, each of us would define the word picnic to our own satisfaction. And every single one of us would have a different meaning for that word. So inside every single one of us is a structure of the meaning of the words. If the person we're talking to has had similar experiences as, as what we've had, we can still probably count on the fact that their experiences will be vastly different from ours. And so each of us have different words that we use to structure our thinking. And that's what the map is not the territory means. It means that every person thinks about things in a different way. And so I'm going to use the words that produce the most results in you, not necessarily the words that produce the most results in me. And that's important. NLP is a description of the human being from a context, process or structural point of view. Now, we're less interested in the content and more interested in noticing patterns of behavior that occur and looking at the context in which this behavior is produced. So we don't need to spend 15 years finding out the details of someone's personal history. It's simply not that meaningful. The question is, how do you get to the context or the structure? How do you move to discover the context or structure of a behavior? And you'll definitely get some content. However, each time you pay attention to the content, what you're looking for is the structure that it represents. And this is all tied up in this presupposition. The map is not the territory. 
which essentially says the words we use are not the event or item that they represent. Number eight, you're in charge of your mind and therefore your results, and I'm in charge of my mind and therefore in charge of my results. What that means is that if I can structure my thinking so that I hold a positive representation in my mind, if I can totally focus on what I want to have happen, then I can produce the kind of results I want. I have a very clear experience of this in my life. I remember waking up in the olden days and I remember waking up and I'd wonder whether I was going to have a good day or a bad day. And then I realised that I was actually in charge of my own state. I was in charge of whether I'd have a good or bad day. I was in charge of my own mind. I realised that everything, all of the results that I produced, all of the behaviour, everything I did, was dependent upon that internal representation that I held in my mind. How do you control that internal representation? Well, one of the questions we ask in NLP a lot is, who's in charge anyway? Who's in control of your brain? And it's a great question because most people run their brain as if there was no one there. And definitely as if there's no one in charge. And most people allow their brain to run on and on and on. They allow their conscious mind or their unconscious mind to just carry on and carry on and carry on. And the fact is that someone needs to be in charge. In fact, it's one of the major presuppositions of NLP that people are in charge of their thinking and therefore in charge of the results that they produce. So to say that you have no choice over your thoughts does not include the function of the conscious mind. Because the fact is, for example, think of a blue tree. You can choose to think of a blue tree or you can choose to change your thinking and think about something else at any given moment. The fact is that no matter how many thoughts are going on in your head at any one time, you're in charge of all of them. So in NLP, we totally believe that we're in charge of the thinking that the unconscious mind actually is doing. And we believe that we have the responsibility of being in charge of the thinking and all of the thoughts that you think. So the way I figure it is if you're going to be in a negative state and you're going to pick a negative state to be in, you may as well schedule it because you're in charge. If you have to be in a negative state, why not schedule it for a certain time of the day so that it doesn't actually interrupt your learning and growth? Like, would it be possible to be sad, for example, from 3am to 5am and do a really great job of it? Focus completely on it. Could you really focus on being sad from 3am to 5am so that there wouldn't be anything else to do and it didn't distract you from the other tasks that you want to get done and the achievements you want to achieve in your everyday life? And sure, we could say, yep, I can do that and that's really nice. It lets everyone off the hook. However, the client can be sad whenever they want to. Just encourage them to be sad at a convenient time when it's not going to bother them or bother the results that they're achieving. So in the daytime, they can achieve the results that they want. So the fact is, you're in charge of your mind and the results you produce by your thinking. Now remember, on page 7, 
You've got the external event coming in through the filters. They delete, distort, and generalize, and then they come inside and an internal representation is made. This is intimately coupled with physiology and ends up producing a certain behavior. Number nine, people have all the ability that they need to succeed. There are no unresourceful people, only unresourceful states. You see, if we have all the ability we need to succeed, and that means we have all the resources we need to succeed, then it's inevitable that we succeed. So we believe that everyone has the ability to be able to do what they want to do. They have the ability to succeed at whatever they wish to succeed at. All we need to do is add resources necessary to allow them to get what they need or get rid of what they don't need. Now, this is a useful belief. Let me give you some examples. First of all, there's no limitations in terms of a person's ability to learn. And I don't believe that intelligence is the determinator of this. For example, a young child in school may get terrible grades and go on to create a phenomenal business. I had a child that came to see me about spelling and they were a kinesthetic child. And kinesthetic is really, you know, really good for feeling things, but it's not so great for spelling things because spelling is done visually, it's taught visually. Part of the reason that he couldn't spell is that he was looking down and to the left as you looked at him. So in terms of his eye patterns, he was looking down into kinesthetic. And what we needed him to do was to look into visual. So we changed the way his eye patterns were constructed and he began spelling brilliantly. Spelling strategies are one of the easiest to assist children to change. Well, as you start to work with people, you're going to discover that if you change your own beliefs and you make your own beliefs unlimited, what's going to happen is you'll produce way better results and so will your clients. Every single human has the ability to learn. In fact, they're learning machines. If we were to take a rat and put it in an enriched environment, in about 45 minutes, the rat's brain waves would change to a point where the rat has to learn something. Now, a human's brain is going to change in a matter of minutes. If we put a human in an enriched environment where the human being is going to learn something, what will happen is that the human being will learn something and the brain waves in the human will change in a matter of moments. When they cut open Einstein's brain after he died, they looked at it and said, wow, look at the size of this guy's brain. He had so much gray matter that his brain was heavier than an average brain. And so at the time, they said that Einstein's brain was much larger than the average person's and that the reason for that was that he thought more. It allowed him to think the thoughts he did. He had lots of thoughts going on in his head and so his brain adapted for it. So in NLP, of course, we believe that the brain is used and that that use of the brain will increase the brain waves. And in fact, there's some research, if you read Megabrain by Michael Hutchinson in 1986, 
that an enriched environment can change the thinking of a human being and also increase the size of the brain. Which means that essentially all the kinds of changes that we make with a person will enrich their life and also enrich their ability to think. And if we do that, then the change that we make, that there's no such thing as intelligence when it comes to performance. So back to number nine, what do we believe? We believe that people have all the resources they need to succeed and to produce the kind of changes and the kind of outcomes that they wish to produce. All right, let's look at number 10. All procedures should increase wholeness. Now, this is a very important presupposition. Some trainers of NLP install parts into people. However, in this school of NLP, we believe that all procedures should increase wholeness. Now, the people who install parts believe that it increases people's flexibility of behavior. However, our point of view is that all procedures should increase wholeness and not fragmentation. If we're going to do any kind of intervention, it should increase the wholeness of the individual. People are fragmented enough as it is, and there are too many possibilities for fragmentation to exist already in society. So the more we can do to increase wholeness and decrease internal conflict, the better the person will respond. Okay, number 11. There's only feedback, which essentially says there is no failure. So there is no failure, there's only feedback. And this is important because as you get better and better at producing any kind of behavior, the possibility of getting really great feedback gets less and less. So we should always welcome feedback because that's what's going to allow us to improve our behavior and to get better and better. Now, when you come and take the training, you'll be receiving feedback. In fact, during the training, we often say to people, the best thing you can do is simply listen to the feedback, incorporate it and take it inside yourself and thank the other person for it, rather than trying to justify your behavior or even worse saying, oh, I'm no good. The thing for you to do is to just change your behavior. If everything that happens is only feedback and you're a learning machine, so, for example, let's say I was going to hypnotize someone and they didn't go into trance in the first five minutes. What do I say? Oh, I'm no good at hypnosis? No. I just say I'll try a different induction. That's all that's going to happen. I'm consistently paying attention to the feedback that I'm getting from my clients. Why do I pay attention to the feedback? Because what that's going to do is improve my behavior so I can create the kind of results that I want. If you're communicating with someone and you don't get the response you want, what do you do? You simply change your communication. So there's no failure, there's only feedback. And it's really important as you go through the training or any learning situation for that matter, it's really important that you consider that what you're receiving is adequate feedback hopefully, which will improve your ability to learn and allow you to change your behavior so that you can produce the kind of results that you want to produce. Let's look at number 12. Number 12 is the meaning of communication is a response that you get. Now, I remember before I took NLP, I took some other trainings on communication at university. 
where you could essentially walk up to someone, dump a whole lot of stuff on them and say to them, if you don't like it, it's your stuff, not mine. Now, it's almost embarrassing to think that that's what's being taught in university now, isn't it? If you're communicating to someone and they're communicating to you, who's responsible for the communication? Now, at university, they would say, well, there's two people in the communication, so 50% belongs to each person. Well, in the NLP, we go further than that, and we say that each person has 100% responsibility for communication. They have 100% responsibility for being able to produce the kind of results that they want through the communication that they communicate. For example, if I give 50% of my responsibility to you and you give 50% of your responsibility to me, then how am I going to change my behaviour to produce the kinds of results that I want? So if the meaning of communication is the response that I get in you, then it puts the responsibility on me to change my behaviour sufficiently so that I also produce those kinds of results. Let's look at it another way. If I don't take 100% responsibility for my communication with you, then I don't get to change what I'm doing. And if I don't get to change what I'm doing even as much as 50%, then I actually give up the power that I have in creating the kind of response that I want. I must take responsibility for the response that I create in you in order to have complete power to change the kind of response that I get. So when we're communicating with people, the meaning of communication, regardless of what was said, regardless of how you intended it, regardless of what you thought you said, the meaning of communication is the response that you actually produced. So when you look at it from this point of view, it makes a lot of sense. Because all you have to do is look at what you want and look at whether your outcome is in the communication. And then look across at the other person and see if you're producing that outcome in them. And if you are, then you're communicating the way you want to. And if you're not, then you need to change the way you're communicating it. In other words, the response is what you've communicated. So telephone sales is another example where perception is projection. We talked about that in program one. It's really interesting because there's a high turnover in telephone salespeople. These people either do really well or they go crazy and leave. And in telephone sales, the truth is there's no one out there. You're just dealing with yourself. So when there's someone else on the phone and you create communication, if you leave the communication up to them, then you're giving them the ability to change you. William James in 1890 said that the greatest discovery of our age will be that a person can change his thinking inside himself and thereby change the world around him. So the question is, how do you make the change inside yourself so that it can help make a difference in a relationship outside of yourself? How would you be able to change what's inside of you in order to make a change that would be reflected in people around you or outside of you. If the communication that you're communicating isn't getting the response that you want, then you can change your communication. If you had an unlimited choice of behaviours, now just think about that for a minute. If you had an unlimited choice of behaviours 
and all the time to think, do you think you'd get the response you wanted? What you want to do then, it, of course, is be appropriate and ecological. Now, if you've decided that an outcome is appropriate for a client and it's ecological and the outcome is clear and you take action and there's enough sensory awareness of what you're doing, then the only thing that would limit you from producing the kinds of results you wanted to would be behavioural flexibility. If I had an infinite number of choices in my behaviour and an infinite amount of sensory acuity and I knew what I wanted and I took action and I was in a positive state, then the only thing that would limit me wouldn't have enough time to change in the way that the person needed to be communicated to. So what will give me enough time to communicate to that person? And by the way, that's rapport, and we'll be talking about that shortly. Milton Erickson once said, the very best subject that I've ever had in hypnosis became my best subject after 300 repeated inductions. 300. That's how much effort he put into the communication with that client. He had behavioural flexibility, had a range of behaviours that was so wide which is why he could literally induce trance in 100% of the people that he met. Someone once asked him, are you able to induce trance in everyone? And he said, yes, I've hypnotised everyone I've ever met and I'm still working on a couple of people. Now, if there was something outside of your range of flexibility of behaviour, then that choice may not be available to you. So having great flexibility of behaviour is the key. That's what's going to make the difference in communication. That's what's going to make the difference. Imagine if you communicated with yourself differently. That would make the difference in the results that you got. So remember, the meaning of communication is the response that you get. Number 13, the law of requisite variety. This says the person or the system with the most flexibility of behaviour, will end up controlling the system. I mentioned this a little bit before when I talked about flexibility of behaviour. And it's really important to have the kind of flexibility of behaviour that will allow you to respond to the client's needs and change your behaviour in terms of producing the kinds of results that the client needs. If we strive to have greater behavioural flexibility, our results will improve. And so essentially, that's what we're doing in NLP. We're simply paying attention and making sure that we have the most flexibility of behaviour. It's important, and I've thought about this for many years now, with both clients in business and education and therapy. Sometimes we think, oh, I wouldn't act in a certain way. I wouldn't dare produce that behaviour because it wouldn't seem like I'm a business consultant or it wouldn't seem like I'm a therapist or it wouldn't seem like I'm an educational consultant. Yet the fact is, if we're resisting producing a certain behaviour, it's quite likely that that behaviour is outside of our range of normal possibilities and it's quite likely that we're limited in that area. The greater the flexibility of behaviour you can have, even to produce the most outrageous behaviour, will increase your ability to produce results. By the way, this is especially true with kids who, remember, are the most flexible people on the planet. They'll produce a range of behaviours that's way outside of what you think is okay. 
For example, you go to the shopping centre and you see kids rolling around the floor yelling and screaming and producing tantrums because they didn't get what they wanted. Well, I once had a parent come to me and she was talking about her daughter and how her daughter produced ridiculous behaviours every time she went shopping. And I asked her what she meant and she said, well, you know, she lays on the floor kicking and screaming, beating her feet on the floor. And I said, well, why don't you jump down on the floor and do the same thing? And she said, well, I couldn't do that. And I said, why not? And she said, well, because I'm her parent. Now, think about that for just a minute. If there's a behaviour you can't produce, then that limits you. It essentially limits you and your ability to produce the maximum result. So the law of requisite variety is about us practitioners of NLP being able to extend our range of behaviour so that the behaviours we produce have the maximum amount of flexibility. Finally, number 14. All of our procedures should be designed to increase choice. All of our procedures should be designed to increase choice. Now, what does that mean? I think it means that essentially, if a client comes to us and wants something that limits his or her choice, for example, I don't want to do this behavior anymore ever, then if we have a client, for example, where we're going to limit their choice and limit their capability, I think there's a better solution for us as NLP practitioners. I think we can produce something that increased their choice so that in addition to that behaviour, they could also have another behaviour. And that's it. Those are the presuppositions of NLP. They're convenient assumptions. And they're also beliefs that will help improve our results. My point of view is that you should adopt them. They've made a major difference in my life just simply adopting them and trying them on and utilising them in a way that, I, well, I'd encourage you to do that. If you want to, you can stop the program and go back and listen to the beginning or you can continue on with me. We're going to talk about the prime directives of the unconscious mind. The prime directives of the unconscious mind are essentially from the timeline therapy certification part of the training. And we're going to cover them here briefly because they provide a really good presuppositional basis for NLP and they really make a big difference in our ability to do NLP and the way we think about NLP. And they've definitely helped me in terms of how I work with clients. Now, one of the things that's important as we begin to talk about these prime directives of the unconscious mind is for us to realise that it's the unconscious mind that makes the changes that we make. We can talk to the unconscious mind. We can have a discussion with the conscious mind and at the same time we'll be discussing with the unconscious mind those kind of changes we want to make. And so from time to time we're going to need to incorporate and utilise the work of the unconscious mind. So we need to have an understanding of how the unconscious mind works. We're going to shift gears a little and talk about a part of you which is not conscious. It's your unconscious mind. So let's begin by defining what the unconscious mind is. And I would like to define it as the part of your mind that you're not conscious of right now. Let's think about that because until I mentioned it, you weren't really conscious of the feeling of your feet on the floor or the backs of your legs on a chair or your back on a bed wherever you are listening to this. If you're taking notes, you may not have been conscious of the pen 
and yet you're conscious of the sound of my voice. Maybe you weren't as conscious about other noises going on. And there are definitely some other noises coming in in this recording. There may also be other noises coming in around you. And all of those things that you weren't necessarily conscious of, things like your eyes blinking, your breathing, the beating of your heart, those are all things that your unconscious mind is doing for you. The prime directives of the unconscious mind put the notion of change in perspective. Because the fact is that when we create change, the change we are going to create is going to happen at the unconscious level and in conjunction with the unconscious mind. So let's look at the prime directives of the unconscious mind. We're on page 13 and 14 and some of them are circled. The ones that are circled are the most important prime directives. So let's have a look at what they are. The first is that the unconscious mind stores our memories. It stores our memories in relationship to time and it stores them not in relationship to time. The word temporal means in relationship to time and that means our timeline and atemporal means not in relation to time. Usually the language that we learn are not learned in relationship to time. Now, the relationship is very important because it's the job of the unconscious mind to create relationships or connectedness at the unconscious level. And so that's very important in regards to the way that the unconscious mind stores our memories. Number two, the unconscious mind is the domain of the emotions. It's where all the emotions live. Someone who's not really connected with their emotions may not have as good a connection with their unconscious mind as someone who is well connected to their emotions. So the unconscious mind is the part of us that feels, although certainly we are conscious of our emotions. Generally, emotions are stored and organized and kept in the unconscious mind. Number three, the unconscious mind organizes all of our memories. It uses our timeline. The mechanics of that organization is the just out. So our memories are organized generally according to time and also according to subject. They're also organized according to feeling. And that's what allows us to have a chain of memories. So a certain chain of memories of happiness or frustration. If it's a chain of the same kind of memory, the unconscious mind will chain all of those together. Number four, the unconscious mind will repress memories with unresolved negative emotions. And if we look at Huna, which is the ancient Hawaiian way, what they would say is that the unconscious mind would take a memory with an unresolved negative emotion and put it into a little black bag and shove it down into the body. And in Huna, they didn't really say where the black bag was shoved to. But if you float it above your timeline, and we certainly will before the end of the week's training, then you'll find an entire series of little black bags. You may notice when you look down on your timeline that there were some little dark areas that look like they're missing. And essentially those are memories with unresolved emotions on them. And if you noticed where they were, you may be able to recognize what had happened in that instance. Number five, the unconscious mind presents repressed memories for resolution. So it brings those memories up to make them rational and to release the negative emotions. Because your unconscious mind realizes, and I think both your un unconscious mind and conscious mind realizes that those negative emotions aren't good for us. When you feel a negative emotion, you go, oh my goodness, there's that sadness again. You don't say, gee, that feels good, right? 
So the unconscious mind's job is to bring up those memories for resolution from time to time. And you may notice that the unconscious mind picks when you're feeling really great to do that. So have you ever had that feeling where everything's going well and you're thinking, God, everything's going so well, something bad's going to happen soon. And really all that's bad that's happening is your unconscious mind is going to bring up those memories for resolution because it knows how great you're doing. It's the perfect time, really. And if you've gained resolution on a memory sometime in the past, what you'll find is that by having gained resolution on it, it actually disappears. And that's really how the mechanics of timeline therapy work. Number six, the unconscious mind has the right to keep repressed emotions repressed for your protection. That's the mechanism where we don't actually remember the full content of a certain memory. Number seven, the unconscious mind runs the body. Now that's useful. It's better that the unconscious mind does it than us having to consciously do it. For example, if we had to remember to breathe every day, think about how much thinking that would require, whereas our unconscious mind does that. Imagine if you had to go breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. And you'd have to take up all that time thinking about doing that instead of actually thinking about the things that you want to be thinking about. So in the unconscious mind, everything happens automatically. You just breathe in and out. Now, some people have said to me that they're not sure whether they can trust their unconscious mind. And I wonder who ran your body last night when you were asleep? Yeah, like who ran it? Who did you trust to breathe and to sleep and to process everything for you? Of course, you trusted your unconscious mind. So the unconscious mind is trustworthy. You are able to trust it. It also has a blueprint that it uses to run the body. It has a blueprint of the body now and it has a blueprint of perfect health. And the blueprint of perfect health is stored in an area which we call the higher self. Once we start talking about the higher self, we're actually stepping outside of NLP and we're really stepping more into the world of hypnosis. If you're working with someone who's very conservative, you may want to skip the words higher self. And you could just say to them, it's stored in the deepest part of the unconscious mind. That's where the blueprint for perfect health is. The unconscious mind has access to this blueprint of perfect health and we use this in particular when we begin to heal the body. Number eight, the unconscious mind preserves the body. It maintains the integrity of the body. All things being equal, the unconscious mind will always take the body as its highest job. So the preservation of the body will always be the most important thing to it. Sometimes unconscious minds forget about this. And that's when things like disease crop up and the unconscious mind still knows, even when there's disease, that the highest job of it is to protect the body. So just put a little star next to that one because that is the most important prime directive of the unconscious mind. Number nine, the unconscious mind is a highly moral being. It accepts the morality which you've been taught and which you have accepted. You may have heard honour among thieves the unconscious mind behaves the same way. So it will accept a morality and then it'll accept it or reject it, those ones you've grown up with. So number 10, the unconscious mind enjoys serving and it needs clear orders. It needs orders to follow. And the problem is, is that most of us, our conscious mind gives our unconscious mind inconsistent orders. So we might say one day, oh, wow, I look amazing today. And then the next day you say, oh, wow, I really look awful today. So the unconscious mind gets confused. And when it gets confused, it's not sure which thought 
you want to have more often. So it needs clear orders to follow and it needs consistent directions. The unconscious mind controls and maintains all perceptions. This is number 11. That means that it receives and transmits perceptions to the conscious mind. Anytime we want to increase our ability to perceive, we would work with the unconscious mind. That means you could talk to the unconscious mind and ask it to increase the perception. Even in regular perceptions such as vision or hearing, you can ask the unconscious mind and the unconscious mind will improve the hearing or the vision if you simply work with it to have it do that. Number 12, the unconscious mind is in charge of the generation, the storage, the distribution and the transmission of energy through the body. So if someone comes to you and does actually want more energy or feels like they have low energy, for example, if they're suffering from something like Epstein-Barr virus or they came with chronic fatigue syndrome, then the unconscious mind can be encouraged and given the opportunity to increase the amount of energy and the symptomology of those diseases can be reduced dramatically or even disappear. Number 13, the unconscious mind is in charge of instincts and generating habits. Now those are two different things. So let's start with instincts. Instincts include things like the fight or flight response, where if you're threatened, what will usually happen is the fight or flight response will kick in and you'll choose one of those. Either you'll choose fight or flight and the unconscious mind will simply kick in and you'll either get out of the way by running away uh, or you'll stay there and fight and be safe. The unconscious mind is also in charge of generating habits. There can be good habits and bad habits. Typically, the unconscious mind will need repetition until a habit is installed. Changing strategies using NLP or swish patterns often allow the unconscious mind to change habits by itself. And therefore, the unconscious mind won't need as much repetition if we're using NLP to change a habit. Number 15, the unconscious mind is programmed to continually seek more and more, which means there's always more to discover. There's always more to discover. There's always more to discover. And this, by the way, is an important function in things like substance abuse. So in a substance abuse situation where a client begins with a little bit of substance, eventually they need to take more and more of it. And that's because the unconscious mind generally functions in comparison. So each time it's looking for a little bit more and more. Now this is also important in getting rid of substance abuse. Number 16, the unconscious mind functions best as a whole integrated unit and it doesn't need parts to function. Now we talked about this under presuppositions and we said that all procedures should increase wholeness. And I think from our point of view in NLP, the best thing to do is to have integrated wholeness at the unconscious level rather than having a fragmented unconscious with parts. Anytime you have a client that has incongruency, parts integration is the answer. Number 17, the unconscious mind is symbolic. It uses and responds to symbols. Carl Jung was actually one of the first psychologists to appreciate the work of symbols and to understand symbols. And he went on and described the archetypes. And he wrote a book called Sight and Symbol. He was one of the first people to point out that the unconscious mind thinks in symbols and uses symbols and responds to symbols. It's very important that if we take a client's personal history, we ask the client about their past and we ask questions about their past. 
because a lot of what the unconscious mind gives us may be symbolic and not actually the event that is spoken about. Remember, the map is not the territory. A way you can test this is, if you've got brothers or sisters in particular, is remember a big family event and ask for everyone's recollection of it and everyone will give you a different recollection. Number 18, the unconscious mind takes everything personally. Now, this is the basis of perception is projection, which we talked about right at the beginning. The unconscious mind takes everything personally and it thinks it's about you. So it's a double-edged sword. It's good and bad. It's good if you can get control of your thinking. And if you can't, then it can work against you. If you see everyone as divine, that's a great meditation because if you see the people outside yourself as divine, then really you're seeing yourself as divine. Now, what's really great about NLP and working with clients, whether it's in business, education or therapy, is believing on a daily basis that they can make a change. And that's a magnificent meditation for you because as you look across at them and see them changing, you see yourself changing and your unconscious mind takes that personally and understands that you can change. So the unconscious mind is taking everything personally is a really important part of NLP. Every time you work with someone else, they change. That increases your belief in yourself. Number 19, the unconscious mind works on the principle of least effort. It works on the path of least resistance. It will do as little as it possibly can to produce the results you've asked for. Now that's important because it means we need to pin the unconscious mind down when we're asking it to make a change. And we'll talk about that a little more specifically in the timeline therapy section. The unconscious mind works on the principle of least effort, so we need to be really specific with the unconscious mind. Number 20, the unconscious mind does not process negatives. Now, we did mention this a little earlier, and we'll mention it again. So if I say to you, don't think of a blue tree, of course, you're thinking of a blue tree. So we have to be careful to suggest to our clients the kinds of changes we want them to make. Now, we could tell them what not to think. However, the unconscious mind will pick up very easily if we tell them what to think. So Erickson used to say, I don't want you to go into a trance just yet because I have to have a discussion with your conscious mind. And I want to make sure your conscious mind is here. I don't want to be talking directly to your unconscious mind. Well, the unconscious mind doesn't process negatives. So of course he was speaking directly to the unconscious mind. So number 20 is also a really important prime directive because it allows us to utilize the way the unconscious mind already thinks in the process of being able to make change. So those are the prime directives of the unconscious mind and we've covered them all today. And they serve as a really solid basis of believing and especially are well used in conjunction with the presuppositions of NLP. So go back and review these whenever you need to. I'd like to ask you to now just review all of these in the worksheets that you've been sent out.